Well, our text this morning is the last few verses of Habakkuk. If you've been with us these last few weeks, you'll know that we've been working through this short book, and we come now to verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. Please turn there with me. I was asked the question last week of what I'll do with the sixth week. When I first thought to preach through this book over six Sundays, I I thought I could tease out six sermons, and the way the text divides, I was wrong. Uh, And that's not a problem. I think what we'll do next week is look at the New Testament uses of Habakkuk. So you'll know that the New Testament uses Habakkuk in at least three places, and we'll consider how those New Testament authors sought to lean on the theology given to us by the prophet Habakkuk in their own particular context. For today, verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3, I'll read the text, beginning verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's read the word of the living God. By way of review, last week we began Habakkuk's prayer. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 16 was our text, and we saw the fruition of this man's learning curve that he has given to us in this book By the end of this book, he is not the same man as he was at the beginning. A questioning prophet in the opening verses, by the end, he is a man of prayer who praises the Lord. And specifically, we saw last week that Habakkuk laid hold of and gave voice to that important truth given in chapter 2, the righteous shall live by faith. 1 through 16 might be summarized as Habakkuk's prayer of faith. Perhaps you notice that we didn't actually reach his amen. Verse 16 is not the end of Habakkuk's prayer, but rather verses 17 through 19 close out his prayer. And it's fine that we drew a line last week at verse 16. The thought changes Here in 17 through 19, the break in our English Bibles is not a problem, but it is still part of Habakkuk's prayer. And the reason that I draw attention to that continuity is to simply emphasize again that here we may learn from Habakkuk as our example. It is not often, as I mentioned, it is not often that the prophets are given to us primarily as a point of example, to imitate. 
As you read any of the prophets, they give a message that we're to apprehend, learn from, learn about God and His salvation and our sin and appropriate the message to our context. Very rarely is the point of the text that we should imitate the prophet. But again, Habakkuk's an exception. He's unique amongst the prophets. He petitions with God. He wrestles with God. He struggles with some of the most important questions in all of life. And certainly in chapter 3 of his book, he is supposed to function for us as an example that we're to imitate. We learn how to pray by studying Habakkuk chapter 3. That was true last week, it's true this week, and specifically from these few verses, we might learn how to rejoice in the Lord. If the salient point of his prayer last week was that he was resting in the knowledge of the Lord, trusting in Him, depending on Him, and his soul was quietened by that trust, now he goes further, the trajectory continues, and he not only expressed trust, but a joy a rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of great suffering. Habakkuk is to be our example as we study this prayer, teaching us how we might rejoice in the Lord at all times. During times of abundance and during times of want, the mandate that God places upon His people is to rejoice in Him. It's certainly not wrong to find pleasure in the blessings of the Lord, but they're not to be the foundation of our joy. We're to understand those blessings in their proper place, namely as blessings coming from the Lord's hand, not a substitute for the Lord's hand. If the Lord in His wisdom should take away those blessings, it should be that we can still say, I rejoice in Him. Now, how does Habakkuk arrive at that? The logic of the text is simple. He disassociates his hope from his circumstances, and he centers his hope on the character of God. That is the argument of the text, ever so simple, It's so important for us to learn. Habakkuk disassociates his hope from his circumstances. Therefore, he is not rejoicing in them as the foundation of his confidence, and he places his hope squarely in the character of God. There'll be our two points, and before we jump in to look at the text, just a note, a note of application about this principle of rejoicing in the Lord. It is not, do not think of it as a lofty ideal that is set forth occasionally in Scripture for only the spiritually mature to attain. The notion of rejoicing in the Lord, even in times of suffering, is not given in the Scriptures as a lofty ideal by which the spiritually mature might attain, but for the rest of us, we are left simply accepting that times will be tough and our joy will vanish. It's actually a very consistent message throughout the Bible that all of God's people 
are expected to find their joy in Him, that their confidence should be founded in Him alone, it is an expectation that God gives for His people that we are to learn. It's so important because if we do not know how to rejoice in the Lord in times of abundance and in want, you can rest assured that your heart will find something else to rejoice in. You'll choose the path of idolatry because you haven't learned how to rejoice in the Lord. And so we learn today through Habakkuk how to put our confidence in him to disassociate our trust from our circumstances and therefore to join with the prophet and say, I take joy in the God of my salvation. Beginning with the first point, Habakkuk disassociates his hope from his circumstances. In verse 17, he walks through the reality of what will come to pass when the Babylonians invade. He is here speaking about a future reality. He understands that the the judgment that God has decreed is now inevitable. The Babylonians are coming, and looking forward to that future reality, he speaks as if present, though the fig tree does not blossom. The fruit is not on the vines. The olive is not producing its oil. There's nothing left in the fields, the flock are cut off, and there's no herd in the stalls. The people of Judah have fallen upon hard times. Now, it seems very self-evident that the people of God should not place their trust, their confidence, ultimately in their circumstances. That's the theology underpinning Habakkuk's prayer. It seems a self-evident truth, barely worth mentioning. If I had asked you this morning when you walked in, in what should you be placing your trust? I don't imagine any of you would have said, well, I place my trust in my health. I place my confidence in my job, in my bank account, in my home, in the good life that the Lord has blessed me with. We understand the biblical answer to give. But it's ever so more difficult to live that out in practice. Our hearts are full of desires, layers upon layers of desires oriented in many different directions, not always towards the Lord. And as they work together, it can very much be that we have knit ourselves to our circumstances so that there is to some degree a confidence placed in the material blessings that the Lord has given to us. So much so that if He should, in His wisdom, according to His providence, take them away from us, it would be very difficult to say with the prophet, yet I rejoice in the Lord. Consider just how impressive The prophet's confession is, in verse 17, by noting the progression of thought. Most likely, as he walks through the reality of his circumstances, he is increasing in severity that which has been taken away. The fig tree 
is a nice to have. In Habakkuk's day, the fig tree would have been used to produce honey. It's nice to have a jar of honey in your cupboard, but if it's taken away, it's not all that damaging to your hope. Similarly, with the fruit on the vine, I enjoy having fruit in the fruit bowl, but if you were to say no more fruit, life goes on. But then he says, the fields have no food. Now he's moving from the nice to have, the comforts of daily life to the essentials. There's no oil and there's no crops in the field. So now it's not simply that there's no honey or fruit, but there's no food in the cupboards. Now God, in His providence, according to His wisdom, has stripped the cupboards bare of every home in Judah. And then Habakkuk goes on another level of severity and says, more than that, there are no herd in the stalls, there are no flocks. Speaking about the very means by which they would earn their livelihood. It's not simply that the cupboards are bare, but now we have been stripped of the very means by which we might go on. The very means by which we earn a living and can see for ourselves a future, God has taken it all away. And so you see the confession of rejoicing in the Lord. It's a very impressive one from the prophets, one that is not easily attained. What is it that would hinder us from freely saying, though the Lord cut off all of these essentials, I rejoice in Him. What hinders us in Habakkuk's day, it would have been the ever-pervasive reality of syncretism in the land. Not that Habakkuk himself was necessarily guilty of this, but you read the book of Kings and it is one long sorry story of syncretism. That is to say, the people trying to lay one hand on God, the biblical God, and show some modicum of faithfulness towards Him, while at the same time placing their other hand on some other perceived deity. Let me try to worship both at the same time. Why would there be any appeal to swear allegiance to another God because of what they understood that God would bring to them? My life is going to be worshipping Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and Baal, the God of fertility, because He makes my crops grow. He brings the rain. He ensures the cupboards are full. So I'm going to place a hand on both and live my life worshipping the two syncretism-pervaded life in ancient Judah. Now, we don't call it syncretism today, and certainly we don't outrightly try and worship two gods at the same time, but we might give our attention to the advancement of secularism, particularly through materialism, consumerism. We have more buying power than ever before. Relatively speaking, we are some of the richest people on the planet. 
We have more options presented before us than any previous generation, and everyone and everywhere we turn, we're being encouraged to buy, to accumulate, to have, to hold, fill our life with stuff so that the Christian, the Christian today can very much, very easily have a large portion of their hope set in their material worth, their trust, their confidence has very slowly but surely been set in that which is around them rather than enjoying the blessings for what they are. Blessings from the Lord that He may take away from us. Blessings which are fleeting. Material possessions that won't go with us into eternity Material possessions that undoubtedly make our lives comfortable but should not be the source or the ground of our confidence. There is a fight that is far greater than I think most Christians have come to terms with that confronts the church today to see our material possessions for what they are so as to disassociate our hope from them and place our confidence firmly in the Lord. Now, how do we fight this fight? How might we, with Habakkuk, be able to say, though God has taken away, though He has taken away my car or my job or my house, though in His wisdom, according to His sovereign plan, He has chosen this day to take away from me, I yet rejoice in Him. I think, again, we can learn from the prophet He can function as our example. Remember, we're at the end of Habakkuk, and the learning curve can be instructive for us. How is it the man, Habakkuk, has got to this point at the closing few verses of his book, able to boast in the Lord and say, I don't care for my circumstances as the source of my hope? There's much we could say. I would summarize by noting at least two things. Habakkuk has been a man who has continually come to the Lord in prayer, and he has continually received Revelation from God. If there are two defining features of this man that could function as a point of example for us throughout the whole book, it is his readiness to come to the Lord in prayer and to receive revelation from God. Habakkuk did not go elsewhere when he wrestled with the problems of suffering. He went to the Lord and he interceded and he prayed to Him and God responded and Habakkuk received the message. The point of example is that we ought to be those of much prayer and much study of God's Word as a means of instructing our hearts as to where our hope should lie. I wonder if you've ever thought of prayer as a means of instructing your hearts. Puritan once said he has learnt more through hours of prayer than he has through reading libraries of books. You understand that when you pray, you bring to the Lord your petitions, you express your adoration of Him, you worship Him, you commune with the living God, and in so doing, at least part of what is happening in that time is God is further tuning your heart to His worthiness. 
There is an outworking, a fruit that comes through your time of communion with God that looks like you further affirming the truth that you proclaim to Him. And certainly, as you open God's Word day after day, He instructs your heart as to where your hope should be. You see, coming to the Lord in prayer and opening up His Word is the tried and tested means that God has ordained for all of His people by which we are to put things in perspective. Don't think that by living your life amongst your circumstances, never turning to the Lord, you will accomplish the same progression that we see with Habakkuk. Again, the point is so obvious, it barely is worth stating, and yet we need to be so reminded of this regularly. You do not arrive at this point of rejoicing in the Lord, disassociating your trust from your circumstances by never turning to the Lord. But you pursue Him through His Word and prayer so as to learn how to put your confidence in Him alone. William Cowper wrote a poem based off of these few verses in Habakkuk. Maybe you know the poem. Perhaps you don't know anything of his background. William Cowper, living in the 17th century, was a very troubled man. He suffered for most of his earthly life with depression. When he was 31, he tried to commit suicide three times. They put him in an asylum, and it was while he was there that he came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Cowper wrote a poem based off of these few verses in Habakkuk, the very last verse of the poem encapsulates the point. The vine and fig tree neither, their yearly fruit should bear, though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God, the same abiding, through praise, shall tune my voice. For while in love confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Through praise, He tunes my voice. Through praise, God tunes my voice. As I come to Him in prayer, as I receive from His Word, He builds me up in my confidence in Him. You can't put the cart before the horse. You don't wait around until you have trust in the Lord to come to Him. You come to the Lord through prayer and His Word, and in so doing, He will build up your confidence in Him and show you the utter futility of placing your trust in your circumstances. And so let me encourage you this day towards the simple spiritual disciplines of prayer and study of God's Word. It is at least the first part of arriving 
with Habakkuk at the point of saying, I don't rejoice in my circumstances, but I do rejoice in the Lord. Now, the second part of his logic, moving on to verse 18, is to set his hope in the character of God. He disassociates his hope from his circumstances. He sets his hope in the character of God. I'm choosing my words carefully here. The text says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I take joy in the God of my salvation. I'm choosing to use the word hope to try and point out that that is the foundation that gives way to rejoicing. You understand that our joy doesn't arise from a vacuum. It is predicated upon a certainty. We put our joy in, we rejoice in that which we are confident of, and so our hope needs to proceed and the joy will follow. The way in which Habakkuk the prophet can say, I will rejoice in the Lord, is because first and foremost, he has set his hope in the Lord. And specifically, we might say he has set his hope in the character of God. Notice, just by way of example, the various names that Habakkuk uses for God, even in just these two verses. He begins by using the covenant name that we have observed so often as we have worked through this book. One of Habakkuk's favorite names for God the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, and every time he uses it, he is invoking a certain theology. He is invoking the covenant-keeping theology that we see all the way through the Old Testament as God drew his people out of Egypt, formed them into a nation, revealed himself to them, and entered into a covenant with them. Habakkuk is invoking the theology that is so wonderfully encapsulated in a few verses in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means will he clear the guilty. That is the theology that Habakkuk has hidden away in his heart, and he has in mind every time he calls upon Yahweh. And so you see when you have hidden that theology in your heart, when you have come to apprehend the covenant-keeping theology that attends to this God, it places everything in perspective. In essence, what Habakkuk is saying is, I know that I have a gracious God. He has been kind to me, undeservedly so. I did not merit His kindness, but I know His grace. And so for that reason, it does not matter to me if the fig tree is not bearing fruit. Habakkuk is saying, I know I have a merciful God. He raised me up from the pit when I could not have done it myself. He looked upon my desperate condition and God in His mercy raised me up. And because I know that is true of God, it doesn't matter to me when there are no fruit on the vines. 
Habakkuk is in essence saying, I know my God is slow to anger. I have learned the truth of his slow to anger nature. I have wronged him so many times. No doubt, even thinking back to the first chapter of this book when he was so bold so as to accuse God of being idle and he said, I've wronged God so often and yet he is slow to anger and for that reason, it makes no difference to my hope when there are no uh, flock in the field. When the fields are barren and empty and the stalls have no life in them, I can rejoice because I know the character of my God. Habakkuk is in essence saying, I know the steadfast nature of his love and I know that he forgives my sins. I know that he will not clear the guilty. Think back to chapter 2 when he recited those oracles against the nations and his heart was again instructed to learn of the comfort that comes in the knowledge that God will judge the wicked. And he says, because I know that that is true of my God, it doesn't matter when the olive fails. My joy is in the Lord because I've learned of his character. He goes on and uses a different title for God in the very next line. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Certainly there is theological overlap between this term and the the covenant-keeping name of the Lord. But Habakkuk is here placing a particular accent on God's saving work. The saving work that we witnessed at the point of the Exodus as he saved physically the nation of Israel from slavery and the saving work that all those who look towards God in faith know through his gospel. You see, we can stand here in the privileged position of having the full counsel of God available to us and know that this salvation comes ultimately through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can, with Habakkuk, declare our God to be a God of salvation. 10,000 sins washed away by the blood of Christ. Righteousness bestowed on the undeserving sinner. Adoption brought into God's family so that we can call him father and he calls us son. Justification. Declared righteous in the heavenly courtroom. His commitment to sanctification, making us more and more like Christ as the years go on, and the certainty of glorification. Very, very soon we will stand before Christ and our salvation will be complete. He is the God of our salvation. Oh, and as Habakkuk takes in the enormity of that single truth, he is able then to say, though the fig tree should not blossom, I rejoice in the Lord. It places everything in its proper place. And then finally, Habakkuk uses this term at the beginning of verse 19, God the Lord. A very unique term used only here outside of the Psalms. 
God, capital G-O-D, then the Lord. Normally, we're used to seeing the word Lord in capitals, as we did in verse 18. When it is, it represents that divine name, Yahweh. Here, Habakkuk employs a very unique name, God, capital G-O-D, representing Yahweh. And then he uses the proper term for Lord, Adonai, Yahweh the Lord, bringing together, again, that covenant-keeping theology with God's matchless authority. He keeps covenant with me, and His authority is matched by no one. I'm not threatened by anyone or anything because I serve a covenant-keeping God who is the Lord. He reigns majestic over all of creation, and so there is no other God that could possibly threaten my right standing before Him. And because I know these truths and have apprehended them in my heart, I can say the produce of the olive fell, but my joy is in the God who is my strength. He is my strength. Here is where we come to understand that the journey that Habakkuk has been on is far more than a mental one, far more than an academic journey from chapter 1-1 through to 3-19. The learning curve that we have witnessed these last few weeks is one that has taken place ultimately in Habakkuk's heart. In the depths of his soul, the prophet has come to terms with the character of his God. And he ought to function as an example to us all. We are all on this journey, striving by God's grace to apprehend yet more who he is, so that we may place our confidence more and more and more in him and less in our circumstances. If materialism and consumerism would hinder us, from disassociating our trust from our circumstances, it is secularism that stops us from learning the character of God. The ever-increasing tide that we witness in our society of removing God from the public sphere, from the public conversation, focusing ever more our attention on that which is immediately ahead of us and seeking as best we might to explain everything we see around us by not appealing to God does a great injury to the apprehension of His character in our hearts. The advance of secularism prohibits the Christian from taking hold of the character of God. It hinders him. Again, there is a greater fight than perhaps we have come to terms with for the Christian today to learn the character of our God. There is a diligence required from each and every one of us to return afresh to the truths of Scripture and learn who our God is to pray with diligence that God, by His grace, would plant these truths deep into our hearts so that we would not merely know them in our minds, but we would take hold of them in our hearts and live by them. 
we would truly live in such a way that should God in his wisdom, according to his providence, take away the reality of our present circumstances and ordain for us a much harder reality, our faith would be steadfast and we would with Habakkuk more than simply saying, I trust the Lord in this. We might even be able to say with our lips, yet I rejoice in the Lord. I've been texting recently with a man in my congregation who is not doing so well in his health. He's actually on vacation with his wife and things haven't turned out the way that they anticipated on their vacation. Praying for them and I texted him last Sunday to see how he was and his response. My heart is full. My spirit is rejoicing. And my body is coming along. My wife is struggling also because of her condition. The best part, he says, we're forced to sit, to read, and to contemplate our Creator. You see, when we apprehend the character of God, there are certain characteristics that arise in our life. Notice in the second half of verse 19, Habakkuk goes on, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk here is not reaching beyond the time of exile. He's not reaching beyond the extent of the Babylonian captivity saying one day everything will be right again. He's speaking about the forthcoming invasion. He makes my feet like the deer's. Notice the simile becomes a metaphor. He makes my feet like the deer's, and then he says more emphatically, he causes me to tread on high places. In the midst of these dire circumstances, Habakkuk finds his feet on high places. It's one of the realities that comes about as we disassociate our trust from our circumstances and we lay hold to the truth of God's character. And then secondly, the very last line of the book, by no means a throwaway comment to the choir master with stringed instruments. Did you ever wonder why Habakkuk included that? There's an imperative implied in that instruction I want you to tell others about this. I want others to know about this God. I want others to understand what it is to rejoice in Him and not in our circumstances. As Habakkuk closes his book, he gives an instruction to the choir master. Put these words to music and rehearse it in the congregation. 
I even wonder if he himself has in his mind the theology of by singing these truths, you come to apprehend them. Cause the people to sing of this great God that they might know him and put their trust in him and thereby rejoice in him. The point is, as you come to learn of our God and trust in his character and rejoice in him, you can't help but boast in him. May we be those that know our God. Put our trust in him and therefore rejoice in him. That he would set our feet on high places and we would boast in the Lord until Christ returns. Pray with me now to close. Father, we give you thanks for these closing words from the prophet Habakkuk. We marvel at his profession of faith as we soberly think upon his reality. The fig tree does not blossom, the olive fails, the field is empty. There's no livestock in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. We ask that you'd instruct our hearts in this way. Father, we give you thanks this morning for the many, many blessings that you have given to us. We enjoy very comfortable lives. We are blessed by your hand and we do give you thanks. Instruct our hearts to see our blessings as they are. May they not be the foundation of our hope. May our joy not be centered on them. May we see every blessing as coming from your hand. May everything that you have given to us, everything that you may take away, point us towards you. Teach our hearts of your character. Father, cause us to be disciplined in the practices of prayer and reading the scriptures that our hearts may be attuned to your character, the Lord, the God of our salvation, Yahweh who is our Lord. May we know you. May our confidence be in you so that we would rejoice irrespective of the path that you have ordained for each one of us. May we rejoice in you. Father, that our feet would be set on high places and we would boast. In you and your gospel all of our days until we come face to face with Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. I ask you to stand for the benediction.
May we be strengthened by this God and may we praise him all of our days. May our hope be set in him. May we know the joy that comes from being in a relationship with this God. To him be glory and majesty forever and ever. Amen.